The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, I'm Suzanne Phillips, and thanks for joining me on Psych Up Live. In the midst of the holiday shopping frenzy with sales, countdowns, and invitations to be a forever friend at any store... We're going to be speaking about a different type of shopping. We're asking the question, why and how does shopping become an addiction? To address this, we're fortunate to have as our guests, Dr. Jean Petrocelli and Dr. Ricardo Repe, experienced psychologists, psychoanalysts with expertise in the field of addictions and compulsions. Their recent chapter on shopping addiction is included in the new book, Beyond the Primal Addiction, Food, Sex, Gambling, Internet, Shopping, and Work, by Nina Savelle Rocklin and Salman Akhtar. Dr. Jean Petricelli is a training and supervising analyst, director, and co-founder of the Eating Disorders, Compulsions, and Addiction Service. She also was the founder of a one-year program at William Allison White, dealing with those issues. She's adjunct clinical professor at NYU, as well as at the Institute for Contemporary Psychology. She's been the editor of five books, including the award-winning book, Body States, Interpersonal and Relational Perspectives on the Treatment of Eating Disorders. She lectures nationally and internationally and is in private practice in New York City. Ricardo, Dr. Ricardo Repe is a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst in New York. He's a faculty member of the Metropolitan Institute for Training in Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy. He has a vast range of research and clinical interests from masculinity to fatherhood, attachment patterns, compulsive behavior, and symbolic meanings of money. He's published in professional journals and is co-authored the chapter that we'll be speaking about. He's a native Spanish speaker who provides both English and Spanish psychotherapy services to adolescents and adults in New York. Dr. Jean Petricelli and Dr. Ricardo Rieppi, it is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you for having us. Okay, let's start with Jean. Let's define shopping addiction for our listeners. Um. Shopping as an addiction is about the relationship to the thing itself, the behavior of shopping, and how that relationship is privileged and used in the service of not feeling other things that may be hiding other feelings or some deeper psychic pain. Uh, Concretely, you know, it's the excessive nature of the buying, but the reasons one does it makes it part of what the addiction is about. There, there's a whole cycle that occurs just like um, one would use a drug, which includes the anticipation of the shopping, the preparation, the buildup, uh, where the person is going to be shopping. And then there's a feeling of elation uh, and, and euphoria, like the fix that happens after. But 
like with any other addiction, nothing really changes. So the thrill of the purchase only eventually, you know, let, gives way to a letdown, disappointment, guilt, shame, because it's not about the thing itself. Um, and with shopping addiction, there are usually a lot of feelings about obsession or loss of control, uh, repetition of behaviors, and in spite of the harmful consequences, they'll continue to do it because there's a lot of denial involved in shopping. So it's never about the thing itself that's being purchased. It's used to, you know, repair mood or other feelings that are not always so known to the person, things that feel more unbearable. So, Ricardo, in terms of it being different from a shopping spree or the holiday shopping that we're doing, what's the major difference? Well, even though they sound similar um, in some ways, you think of impulsive shopping, compulsive shopping is actually not the same thing. Um, what, you, what you see with compulsive shopping is that it usually happens in a more chronic state, and, and it's usually motivated by uh, something internal, like an internal trigger, an emotion, um, and that the person is doing this to seek you know, some way of regulating their emotions or releasing tension. Some people would call it self-medicating or to escape. Um, on the other hand, a shopping spree would be is something that's a lot more acute behavior, and it's usually provoked by an external trigger, like uh, you see a commercial somewhere or you see ads and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, so they're not exactly they, the same thing. Just like compulsive shopping, it's not, um, some people associate it with hoarding, but it's not exactly the same thing. Um, some people who hoard aren't necessarily compulsive shoppers, and they mm-hmm. tend to be not nearly as organized about what they do. Um, mm. And also some people th- wonder whether compulsive shopping is some kind of manic behavior. Um, and, um, it, it, you know, if, if, if the shopping is occurring outside of a manic episode, then generally you, you think the person is not doing this through mania because of mania mm. or in some kind of mood state. And sometimes, you know, the terms are really, they're used interchangeable, so they're just nuanced differences. But... Um, I would just add that with compulsions, it, it, whenever you have a compulsion, we're usually talking about some driven feeling state where one feels the pressure to do something against one's will, right. as if the behavior has a mind of its own. Hmm. Now, when right. family right. members yeah, over the years have worked with people who might have a shopping addict in their, in, it might be the mother, it might be someone, and you correct me, but the, the, part of the difference is Often they, if it's online shopping, they might not even open the box. If it's, in my case, it was a mom and her house was filled with boxes and boxes of jewelry that she had collected or she had purchased. Her best friends were the people in Macy's. And as you folks are saying, um, it's it's sh- when you look at it, and I when we read what you have written about it. So there's a kind of frenzy that goes on until the purchase is made. But unlike one right. of us shopping, they're not thrilled with the purchase. Once right. the purchase is made, right. we've hit rock bottom again. We're depressed again, or it's very much right. it's the, the anticipation that is the the, the thing they're indic- addicted right. to. That's right. And with online shopping, it's been worse because in a way um, 
you know, they can do it without being seen. They can buy different sizes and colors. And then there's this whole bulimic spending that occurs where it's the buying and returning can happen. Um, and basically the things that they are buying are things that may just sit in a closet with the tags on. Mm-hmm. Um, until they decide they're just going to return them. So it's never about the thing. One thing right. that you mentioned in the chapter that's is... quite common that they don't even yeah. use the items that they buy or wear them or, or they'll leave the tags on. You actually mm-hmm. see that a lot. Well, you mentioned in the chapter, and this has been my experience with people, is they're in somewhat of a dissociated state, and that means like an altered state to our listeners, that yeah. so many times they buy the same thing more than once because mm-hmm. they don't even remember what the purchase was. Right. 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 So. That, that happens a lot. I have a patient that continues to buy the same pair of boots and then she goes home to her closet and there they are sitting there. Yeah. Now, Ricardo, you're interested in the meaning of money and in the chapter you folks started with what is the relationship of a person's connection with money and addictive shopping. Let's talk a little bit about that. Well, Ricardo. Um, we included the, mean, the issue of money in the chapter because the meaning of money itself, there's a number of ways that you can understand it, and it's important to, to understand in order to understand compulsive shopping. So it, has a, it can have a concrete meaning. Obviously, you, you give somebody money in exchange for some good or some service. Um, but it's, that, it's a more concrete meaning of it than how we feel about it. Whereas there are also meanings you can have um, around it that are understood by our beliefs or maybe an attitude we have or values that we have about money that um, will influence what we think money can and cannot do for us. Mm-hmm. And then finally, on a more psychoanalytic level um, or the level that we think of um, when treating somebody is that money can function as what we call transference objects. And what that means is that people will have conscious and unconscious feelings and perceptions about money that are shaped by um, early life experiences or just experiences, deeply you know, held emotional experiences that they may or may not be aware of. Um, mm-hmm. So the, these are the different meanings that they have and they are, you know, they're infused in terms of our behavior and our beliefs and, and how we think and act in the world. Um, mm-hmm. So... You know, the fact that money is everywhere, it, it's both a reinforcer, but also it's sort of like a universal narcotic and a drug in a way. It, it, it suits pain. Um, and so it carries all these different meanings like power, control, security, love, mm-hmm. you, you name it. But also some negative feelings like shame or disgust or greed. Um, but that these feelings that are unconscious, they are not something that we're aware of, but they're, they reflect more of our most primitive and what we call unorganized areas of our psyche mm-hmm. um, that are not um, always um, we're aware of, but that create a lot of shame. And so we, we want to get away from that. Um, but also in terms of human relations, we see money as something that may allow us to manage a lot of anxieties that we have in relationships. Um, which you see in compulsive shopping as well, where it can be used as a way of denying dependency. So if you have a lot of money, you don't rely on other people for support or, you know, for well-being. Um, but it can also allow us to um, bypass or get around fear of losing 
our, our self-esteem in relationships, or it might help soften the pain of projection. I yeah, I would just add that um, how money is also like a drug that within a dysfunctional family system, when transactional relatedness is the norm, it replaces the authentic ways that people can connect. So money becomes used um, as that psychic economy to buy things, clothes, objects, and and then it's a way to deal with or soothe, again, the unbearable feelings of yearning or loss or disappointment, anger, whatever it is mm-hmm. that the person doesn't want to feel within the family system. What, right. One of the things right. that you, you write about is that, and let me preface it by saying, so a patient said about a family member, just how much money does he need? I mean, he's a very wealthy man, but he just, how much does he need? But if you read what you have both written and what we've seen is, if money is your way of holding on to a vital self or offsetting a fragile self, you never stop needing it, but it never quite works. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, so I think you, you gave an example of the vignette of Laura, the woman who had had baby twins and felt like she lost herself, which is it was quite a dramatic example. I wondered how the credit card, how credit cards, she used credit cards, as you described, to, to run, run up like $20,000 of, of things. Do you think credit cards have exacerbated shopping addiction? They certainly make the transactions easier. Hmm. But it's the same dynamic that she, yeah. she was yeah. trying to. I mean, it's if you may, it's it's a lot harder to treat someone who has a lot of money with this disorder. And if you have access to having money and a way to do it, then you're going to find people doing it more, and they'll go under the radar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In other words, they don't come to you because they have a shopping addiction. They come for something else, and That's it's not right. even. I mean, you gave that. And they can hide it, and it's it's not until you know you're talking about something else that maybe this issue will even surface. Mm-hmm. Well, let me just ask you, as we're talking, our listeners might want to know: Do you see gender differences with shopping addiction or age um, differences? Well, there's a. It's an interesting question because um, in the past, when they've done these epidemiological studies looking at, you know, who um, and some of the demographics, demographics about that, they found that about 6% of people are um, reporting, self-identifying as having compulsive shopping disorder. Um, and in that study, it was 6% of everyone, but mostly were women, 80% women. women and mostly people 45 and up. However, when they did another study, that instead of asking people, do you identify as having this problem, they asked people more by symptoms. There are different markers of it. They found that even though there was about 6% again, men and women both reported about the same frequency um, Mm -hmm. and that the ages and the income levels were much more varied. So um, it depends on how you ask the question. Um, Mm -hmm. I I would say if you were just basing it on not what do you do you have this problem, but basically if you start asking people, uh, do you have some of these issues, you find that it's about equal men and women and of all age, different ages and income levels. And there's not much of a difference in gender. It's interesting. One of the things April Benson once said is uh, men have the shopping addiction. They just purchase different things than women. 
They might buy different things, but um, as far as the, the behavior itself, they, they have not find, found major differences between genders. Mm-hmm. So if you ask the question, often... uh, if you don't ask the self-identifying question. Okay, so we're going to have to take a break, but the question I want to ask you is how often have you had people come in and identify themselves as a shopping addict who is seeking help? Uh, that's let, let's pick that up well, on the other like side. Like Dave said, uh, usually people don't come in with that uh, complaint um, right off the bat. Usually, what happens is through the course of therapy, you start to see things that they're doing, or you might start hearing them talk more about debt um, or their, their difficulties about it. But it's it's not typically something that someone in my in my uh, experience, someone that comes in with that that uh, problem. But my understanding with talking to a lot of peers um, and colleagues is that they have a similar experience. I don't know what, what your experience has been, Jean. Yeah. Well, let's yeah. let's just hold. I'm going to ask you to hold for a minute because we have to take okay. a break. But that's a really good question to pick up on the other All right, side. I'll come been, back to it. Yeah, you've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Jean Petricelli and Dr. Ricardo Repe. They're psychoanalysts and experts in addiction. They're the authors of the chapter Shopping Addiction included in the new book, Beyond the Primal Addiction. Stay with us. We have much more to discuss. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Channel. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with doctors Jean Petricelli and Ricardo Reppi. They're psychoanalysts and experts in addiction, and we're talking about shopping addictions. Um, we were asking the question, um, Jean, do most people come presenting, I have a shopping addiction and I need help? What have you observed? Ricardo shared some ideas on this. Yeah, it's, you know, I think it really varies. Uh, there are some people, they come into treatment, they identify this as a presenting problem because they have suffered enormous financial debt or strain or it's affected their marriage or relationships, but sometimes you only discover these issues in the course of working with them. And it can look like a whack-a-mole kind of experience where one symptom gets treated and then another one pops up because mm. the underlying issue is still presenting itself. So, for example, you know, someone with an eating disorder might stop binging and purging with food, but then they might start compulsively buying and returning in shopping. Right. 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 So those... if you think of the compulsive shopping as being a symptom of an underlying antsiness or an uncomfortableness in being, then it's going to work its way through and you're just going to see the shopping itself as a symptom of something deeper. Okay. Which I guess is why psychoanalysis is such a good fit to work with this. Well, let's talk a little bit about that um, because we're all psychoanalysts and generally people wouldn't think, mm-hmm. well, you know, I, as I read the, the vignettes, in a number of cases it was the partner who really demanded that the person get some treatment. Um, but why psychoanalysis? How does that fit in terms of helping this disorder? You call it an action disorder. How does it fit? You want to start by talking about that, Ricardo? Oh, sure. Um, well, when we, when at least the way that we, our, our thinking or my thinking is, it's more from a contemporary relational perspective. Um, so we generally look at four, four areas where we see that they, they're having trouble. Um, the one of them is the, how they regulate their emotions. Another one is the, this tendency to react to emotional or emotion or emotional conflicts using physical, um, symptoms versus a psychic or, you know, a psychological symptom. Um, the third area is that they tend to have less access to fantasy and play and, and sort of creativity around how they can soothe or help themselves in that way. And then the last one, which is, I think, very unique to psychoanalysis is that we use heavily use characteristics in the transference and the counter-transference. And so I don't know if, you're, if your listeners know what that means, but that means basically the relationship that occurs between the patient and, and the analyst is used, and things that occur within that are used to help inform the treatment. 
Um, mm-hmm. And that's a very vital and important part of, of the um, of the uh, of our work. That's probably differentiates it from most other forms of work. Um, I don't okay. know if anyone wants to go into those different areas or say something else. To well, say. I w- I would just add that um, if you think about the concept of desire, right, and how um, desire just goes haywire for so many people, you have to think about the relational complexities of desire first, right, and. What happens, you know, desire um, often begins in the absence of the object, in the aftermath of the object, as it were. And if we think about desire in its earliest form, um, there's, it begins in this interval place where um, the, it's, the object is not present, and then you, you have to wait for it. And then if all goes well, then you're able to... You have get this thing, whatever the thing is that you want, and that's when it works. But there are many things that interfere with that. And when you think about it in terms of human relatedness, um, objects can sometimes end up feeling more trustworthy than people. And that's right. when the compulsive behaviors kick in. So if someone is dealing with uh, profound like self-neglect and if there are issues of uh, around dependency and shame and disappointment within the human reliability of other people in their life, objects become the only thing that's trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And so now, what- compulsive shopping becomes a way to try to shore up the outside because the inside feels so empty. You gave that case, Jean, of the young woman who came in dressed very in a very in a very grungy way, and went on to explain the childhood of this person was so depriving and so traumatic that trusting that you would ever get something to make you feel okay or safe, or actually ever relating to someone in a way that you believe that person cares and is attuned to you, was totally out of the picture for this young woman. So That's I guess. Right. You know, and there are many when, c- competing parts because, I mean, that's the thing about when you think about a person as the sum of many parts, there'll be a part that's fighting to hold on to what was familiar and what the person knows, and then there's a part that wants something new and better, but the two are going to be in conflict with each other. So one of the things, and I guess I want listeners to know, it's such an interesting case that this little girl lived in a house with a mother who had many, many problems. One of them is she was a hoarder. They had to leave at times. Um, But one of the things that happens, and I want you guys, your input on it, in psychoanalytic treatment is, as Ricardo said, and you imply, the relationship is central. So if we think that there's never been safety in another person, and so we have safety in objects, and we regulate by buying objects. The very fact of being with a therapist who is going to companion with you, is going to stay with you until some of this gets worked out or understood, as you said, there's layers, as you you mentioned, um, Jane, and as you imply, Ricardo, that would never come out with someone just showing up for four sessions. But someone has to become a trusted object, as you say, a a person who can be internalized. And that's why it seems that psychoanalysis seems such an important fit. Right. 
Because, right. I mean, it isn't the quick fix phenomenon. It's really about structural change, which takes time. It takes time to build trust. Now, one of the things you mentioned... I don't know if it, you caught it or not, but um, a lot of people uh, present with what's called alexithymia, which is the okay. inability to be able to identify what a feeling is, much less regulate it or tolerate it. Sometimes people who people who don't really have a, any sense of what they're actually feeling, it's not represented with words, and so mm-hmm. that takes a long time as well as to help somebody develop um, a sense. First of all, a sense of what's happening, and then to be able to put words to it as well, um, and that's a very difficult thing to do. And it gets even more complicated when you're dealing with also you're, you're dealing with someone's transference and all their feelings that they're projecting onto the therapist and then the therapist is able to utilize through their countertransference some way, indirect way, or sometimes direct way in how to deal with those things. Okay. So if, I, if I'm if i depressed but I really can never name that or I'm very terrified and I can't name that and it happens that an addiction for a little bit of time mm-hmm. eases that, that's mm-hmm. one of the traps I'm stuck in. Right, it'll anesthetize that that initial feeling of that feels unbearable, the depression, the low self-esteem, but then it stays, it's there with you. So it's this temporary high, and then it dissipates, Mm -hmm. which is why it's uh, it's repeated. Now, one of the things that you say is that in what and the transference, countertransference involves the relationship of the patient and the analyst or the psychotherapist. You say that the shopping compulsion or the shopping addiction gets enacted in the therapy. Can you give our listeners an example of what you mean? Sure. I mean, look, there are ways in which um, you can be speaking with someone and, and offering up some thought together as you're co-creating something and they can do like a kind of binge and purge on you in the moment which means that they'll they'll take it in but they really won't take it in and they'll spit it out so there's a way in which um, the relatedness with you will happen Uh, you'll be sitting talking to a patient and then all of a sudden the patient will stop talking about the compulsive spending and and won't even raise it in the whole session. And then that person has been dissociated that from the treatment in that moment. And if you don't stay with them and bring them back to it, then you're colluding in the dissociation um, of the the very thing that they need to be talking about. And I so mean, there are many ways that it also gets played out around money, but that's the more concrete way. And what Jean means is in the dissociation is that if a feel, feeling may be unbearable, then it's split off into a different self-state and the person mm-hmm. is it seems to be exactly. in another place. You almost, as right. the therapist, don't quite know what happened, but you know you lost the right. connection that you had. That's right. That's right. Right. Ricardo, what were also you going to Another way that comes up in the in the session is that when you're when you're working with somebody who has a compulsive disorder of any kind, they usually tend to deal with um, uh, through action and not so much through verbalization or through other ways. So you're dealing with somebody who's 
They're trying to ward off these feelings and discharging them outside of themselves through action. And so it can be hard to get the person to reflect and to Mm -hmm. focus in on on emotions, on even on, on their body. Sometimes you have to mm-hmm. start with the body in order to, to first get to the emotions. Well, the way well, I'm regulating terror or depression... create a safe enough container so that they can react to disappointment or anger with you, and they can feel these mm-hmm. feelings in a safe way with you, because it may be, for some people, the first place that they can actually do that. Mm-hmm. 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 Right. And it's... It's not nothing that is going to be easily given up. If this was my lifeline to feeling like I have a vital self or to not feeling terrified, I'm not, I'm not going to give it up too easily. And when a family member says, why do you do this? Why do you, why do you run up $20,000 on a credit card? It's understandable. We're suggesting that that person really can't tell you why. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult treatment. I mean, you're, you're basically asking somebody who's doing something that gives them empowerment to put that aside or to um, give that up and to feel vulnerable. That's a very difficult thing for someone to do, right? So they already feeling powerless. The last thing they want to do is to, to allow themselves to feel vulnerable. So that can take a long time um, for someone to surrender to that. Um, and like Jean said, it has to be done in a safe environment. But, and know, that's why if you think about the compulsive yeah. shopping as a symptom, then you know and you recognize it's a maladaptive coping strategy to not deal or anesthetize. So it's their secret weapon, you know, mm-hmm. that protects right. them from the excruciating feelings that they don't want to name, they don't want to know. Mm-hmm. And then when you right. add if their symbolic capacity is limited for any reason, they're going to be pulled towards concrete ways of action. Because that's mm-hmm. the only way they know to contain their anxiety is by doing mm-hmm. something. Right. So if a, if a family member called and said that they were recommending that their wife or their daughter come to see either of you, and they said, how would you act? How are you going to actually work on this shopping addiction with my family member? What are the types of things that you would say? I mean, you first want to really get a sense from a very detailed inquiry point of view, like, you know, what do they do? What do they buy? To the smallest of details, um, how how do they feel before they walk in the store? When did they start to think about when they were going to buy something? What came up even before they had the thought that they were going to go? So you walk them back and then you walk them through it in a non-judgmental, open way to just have them tell their story so that you can begin to understand it because then they can hear you hearing their story um, and they can hear it in a different way. It's, mm. it's a way to step back and look at what is actually going on um, and rather than just keep it this secret way of being that um, has been set up to protect themselves. Great. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's how one I, would, I would just add. I would just add to that. Um, in addition to all those things, uh, I would inquire and wonder about other problematic areas they have, because we know that a lot of people who have compulsive shopping problems may also have problems with alcohol abuse or eating, eating disorder or um, other impulse disorders, and also including OCD um, and anxiety disorder. But I would also want to find out about how they handle 
um, what we call a narcissistic injury, you know, when things don't work out well for them, what is their vulnerability to that? What, are, what do they do? How do they respond? Um, I wanted to know about their relationships and the degree of dependence or independence they have on others because usually you find that people who have these sorts of problems have a high uh, dependence on others or a high dependence on um, how they feel from external sources versus from themselves. And then um, the the affect or emotional regulation. How do they tolerate? You know, how do they deal with emotion? And they're usually susceptible to all these things that I just talked about. I think it's so true because people have said, just as someone might say, in in the midst of a family crisis, I need a drink. Someone else says, I I need to go to the store. They've literally said to me, I I get online. And I have to buy something. Mm-hmm. So it, it really, yeah. there is a real overlap, as you're suggesting, as you're both suggesting. Now, I think maybe our listeners could be wondering, um, we only have 30 seconds left, but in this segment, so what's the difference with hoarding? I would say there's an externalization yeah. where the objects themselves um, become a way that a person can feel like they have something because of the kind of hungry ghost inside them that feels empty. So mm-hmm. that um, the, the holding on to the objects in that externalized way allows them to feel like they have a something mm-hmm. because they feel so internally um, deprived and, and, and mm-hmm. not, non-resilient and empty. I would, makes sense. I would say Go also ahead. another difference would be, though, that um, not all compulsive shopping is about either buying high-priced items or it's even about the items themselves, as we said earlier. But some people are, are compulsively drawn to um, bargain shopping, um, where yeah. they, they buy the things, but they, they set them aside. It looks like hoarding, but they're not. the purpose of it is not to hoard. It's, it's that they're so uh, addicted to the shopping experience itself. That they end up not even using, and there's not an attachment to those those objects, as I think um, Jean was alluding to. Right, I think that's, that that's true. more compulsive. Um, we're going to have to take a break, but, and we're going to be coming back. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Jean Petrocelli and Dr. Ricardo Repe. They're psychoanalysts and experts in addiction. They're the authors of a chapter, Shopping Addiction. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input too. Listen for Brave Hearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. Tune in for In the Black. Host Bob Dickerson and his guests take a look at black America and its socioeconomic place. In the Black will discuss the positive issues affecting black Americans, including education improvements, business growth, closing the racial wealth gap, activism, and more. 
In order for America to reach its full potential, black America must do the same. Tune into In the Black, live every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking about shopping addiction with two experts, psychoanalysts, Dr. Jean Petricelli and Dr. Ricardo Repe. Um, I wanted to ask you, does a case jump to mind that exemplifies a little bit more about the treatment or the kind of variation you see in this type of person? Ricardo? Um, I'm thinking about somebody who I worked with who presented with a history of, and it exemplifies a lot of the things that we've been talking about. Um, she came in with a history of alcoholism, um, but was sober at the time and was um, complaining a lot about her marriage. Um, and that was the, the, the main reason she was coming and she was trying to figure out whether or not this was going, going to work and had asked her, her um, husband, whether he wanted to do couples therapy and he, he didn't want to uh, partake in that. So she felt very alone and talked a lot about her loneliness and um, in the marriage, but as well as a sense of loneliness um, most of the time. And um, at the same time, she was developing her career and she started becoming more successful. And she started um, talking about how she, she really got into clothes and that, that became a source of, of pride that people at work was telling her how well dressed she was. And so she started, she started basically unfolding the development of how her compulsive um, shopping behavior uh, occurred. Um, but what she talked a lot about um, that I think is um, difficult for somebody who is not experiencing this to understand is how stimulating it is for her or was for her to shop. 
from looking at, you know, her time was often organized around going to shop or looking online. Um, she had plans for it. So um, it, it was a pick-me-up from feeling down in the marriage or whatever um, that she would feel very stimulated. And, and as well as that, it became a way for her to feel less alone in the world by she became friendly with the store people, the salespeople, mm. and they would often praise her as well as people at work. And her identity started to become somebody who was really well-dressed at work. And so it became a very difficult thing for her to give up, to do, because it gave her the sense of completeness and excitement empowerment and um and unfortunately the she wasn't able to stay in treatment um but we were able to talk a lot about about those things and um at one point she got herself into better betters anonymous mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay interesting how about you Jean? well i mean in a general sense i could say that when somebody uses a substance to self-medicate depression or anxiety and in this case that would be um, like the compulsive shopping then they're driven by this a need to anesthetize anything that feels unbearable Mm -hmm. uh, real or imagined um, or anticipated and if somebody comes from a background where there's a lot of deprivation and helplessness then the person chooses to find any way to escape the pain from feeling needy. And so things, clothes, for example, allow a person to become, uh, in their imagination, their magical thinking, they can become somebody that they want to be. So clothes can be used to hide in plain sight or to become somebody else. And in treatment... When you can actually help someone get in touch with all their parts um, and allow each part of the person to have a voice to, uh, without restriction, with passion, um, with liberation, and be able to help them link those parts together, then they learn that, that there are certain things they must leave behind, but there are even better things that they can now engage in. And... I always like it when there's a struggle and someone has that feisty part of them because that same feistiness can be used towards really going into um, health and, and recovery where symptoms don't have to be used in order to have that fuller life. I think, I think that that's so well said. And it's, um, as you're saying, it's the movement from the symptoms to real connection and relatedness to yourself and to others. Uh, in the interest of time, I, I want to thank you and I want to ask you, how can our listeners find your books or find either of you in terms of seeking treatment? Jean? Well, the uh, book is on Amazon Okay. and on Rutledge's website. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I'm a psychoanalyst out of the William Allenson White Institute and also faculty for NYU postdoc and both of those websites um, have our have my information okay uh, the, the name of the book is beyond the primal addiction and Ricardo primal how would people find you sex, gambling internet shopping and work published in 2019 oh. Oh, okay all right um, if there was one thing you were going to say to our listeners Jean what would it be go easy this holiday season <laughs> okay how about you Ricardo 
Um, I would say that um, that this poses a very serious problem that um, could cause a wreak havoc on someone's life, and that understandably there's a lot of shame around this issue as well as there are other addictions. Um, and there's a lot of jokes around this, around you know how could someone um, lose control of shopping, but that there is for them to take it seriously as something that is uh, very problematic, but that can be treated. Mm-hmm. One thing that you both say, I mean, that's so true, what you said in the end of your chapter is we live in a world that is so fast moving and so intense and work, people are so involved with work that very often they desperately choose the shopping rather than relating. So it's not a world that's conducive to mindfulness, but actually, right. as you say, recognizing this is suffering and nothing to be shamed about and to reach for help could make all the difference. I want to thank both of you for the work you do with your patients, the teaching you do and the writing you do. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this in any prior show as a podcast. This will be a podcast by 5 p.m. tonight. It'll appear on my host site as well as on the podcast app of iPhone, iTunes, Voice America, the Apple Podcast, Stitcher. You can ask Alexa to hear it. To um, Google Play, almost everywhere you can find the podcast. Mostly until next week, remember that you can drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. As Jean says, go easy over this holiday's time. And remember to take care and next week be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.